0: Good morning everyone. It's good to see you um, and to uh, see you as well via Zoom uh, this morning. Uh, I always have felt that those who come to church on the morning of the time change in the spring are the real saints (laughs) because it is an early start. There's no getting around it and uh, so thank you for coming and thank you as well for those of you who are on Zoom. I know that many of you Are uh, using Zoom because of the need to be uh, uh, careful because of your places of employment, and uh, we really are very very grateful. You know, I was telling a friend yesterday that all of a sudden, um, churches tend to be the last to move into the latest technological revolution. We're, We're slow at this. We have been historically. But the pandemic moved all of us into uh, being uh, television producers and directors pretty quickly. And uh, so thank you so much to the tech people. They're the unsung heroes in the Christian community of, uh, of the pandemic without any question. Uh, You have heard the scripture read and uh, the outline was distributed. Thank you, Josh, for distributing the outline uh, that uh, I believe is also going to be here in the sanctuary. I think Alex got ready for the sanctuary as well. And uh, so this morning, um, the third of this four-part series, uh, Lenten series, dealing with uh, Matthew 26 and 27... We looked at Gethsemane and the three sleeping disciples uh, the first Sunday and then last Sunday we looked at uh, Jesus' words uh, to Peter after uh, he was arrested uh, and uh, his uh, determination to do the Father's will and uh, his desire to be uh, in the place where he was supposed to be in terms of God's plan and and instead of calling 10,000 angels he died alone for you and me. And uh, this morning, the contrast between Peter and Judas in Matthew 26 and 27. Next Sunday, a message on Pilate, the cowardice of Pilate, uh, to finish this uh, four-part Lenten series. Let's pray. Lord, as this morning we deal with uh, what really is at the heart of why you came, we pray that your divine presence would permeate our lives, and would cause us to rise up in obedience to your command. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1973, a brand new book authored by American psychiatrist Dr. Carl Menninger was making a tidal wave reaction in the American psychiatric profession. The book was controversial because of Dr. Menninger's theory that one of the major causes of the rise of mental sickness in American society was, in fact, moral sickness. He proposed that moral illness could be a contributing factor in mental illness, and the cure of moral illness in a person's life was a significant component in the recovery from mental illness. I have told you Dr. Menninger's controversial theory, and to the best of my knowledge, he was not a Christian. Now let me tell you his even more controversial title. The title of this book was, Whatever Became of Sin? It's still in print, and still a very significant book in uh, that whole uh, timeline of what was taking place in uh, psychiatric care in that period of of history. If Dr. Menninger's title was appropriate in 1973, it is even more appropriate in 2021, 48 years later. In both our society and the Christian church, the word sin has fallen on hard times. The word sin is too harsh, they say. Let's use words like mistake, error in judgment. There are better terms than the word sin. And within the church, let's be honest, we prefer softer terms like falling away and backsliding. But sin is still sin. The times may have changed, but in the eyes of God, the result is still the same. Sin causes guilt, shame, and most importantly, separation from a holy God. Dr. Victor Shepherd, professor of historical and systematic theology at Tyndale Seminary in Toronto, says it this way, Sin is not a thing which can be measured or calculated. Rather, it is best described as a break in the relationship between God and a person. What is intriguing about the passage of Scripture that is before us this morning is that Matthew gives us back-to-back accounts of two persons who sinned. I think that Matthew is an incredible craftsman, an incredible wordsmith. And the way he puts these two events back-to-back is no accident. He's done it on purpose. But the way that Peter and Judas deal with their sins brings two different results. And it is in understanding how Peter and Judas deal with their sin that we can experience either a renewed relationship with God or further estrangement from God. Here's the first conclusion that we can draw from Matthew's record of these two men's lives. Both men sinned. And the fact of history is that Jesus told both Peter and Judas that they would sin. They should not have been shocked by what took place in their lives because both men were told what was coming. Peter and the other ten disciples were part of that entourage that journeyed from the upper room where the Lord's Supper was first celebrated to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Thursday night before Good Friday. It was on the way to the garden that Jesus told them that they would all fall away on account of him. Matthew 26, verse 31. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Not I, Lord. Not me. I'll stick with you to the very end. You'll remember Jesus' response as immediate. I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So, Peter, never to leave something alone, picks up and says, Even if all, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. But just as Jesus predicted it happened, three times Peter said, I don't know the man. The third time he called down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Conclusion, Peter sinned. Well, Judas. Jesus told Judas that he too would sin as they celebrated the Passover in the upper room. Jesus shocked them with the disclosure that one of them would betray Him. Judas says, Surely not I, Lord. Matthew 26, verse 22. Then Judas said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Yeah, Jesus says, yes, it is you. It couldn't be me, Judas thought. All he wanted to do was to speed up the process of Jesus becoming the Messiah. As soon as Jesus came before the Sanhedrin that night, they would recognize him as the Messiah and the new kingdom of Israel would be established, but it did not happen that way. It was not a coronation, but rather a crucifixion for which Judas set Jesus up. And Judas, seized with remorse, ran inside the temple and threw 30 pieces of silver at the feet of the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? they replied. And then these telling words. I mean, there's a lot of untruths that take place in the trial of Jesus, but here's one that is true. That's your responsibility. And it was. And it was Peter's responsibility. That's the nature of sin. We've got to take responsibility for it. It was Peter's responsibility that he too sinned by denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Both men sin. But here's the thing I want you to see this morning. This is the genius of how Matthew puts this story together. Both men sinned, but both men reacted differently to their sin. Peter went outside the temple the courtyard of the temple, and wept bitterly. Judas went out and hanged himself. Obviously, there's a difference between the two men's reaction. It's self-evident. Peter, realizing the enormity of his sin, remembered the words of Jesus, saw Jesus' face. I think Jesus caught it. Peter, by a glance. And he thought to himself, this is my paraphrase, what have I done to Jesus? Judas, seized with remorse, went into the temple and tried to reverse what he had done. And then he thought, what have I done to myself? I suppose Peter could have hanged himself too. His denial of Jesus was no different than Judas' betrayal. See, this is another thing that we as Christians do very, very often. It's just simply not based on any kind of New Testament theology or Old Testament theology for that matter. There is no qualitative difference between the types of sin. You cannot find in the pages of the New Testament a list of the sins that are worse than the others. They're all declared to be the same. They separate us from a holy God. There's no qualitative difference. And that's why the Christian community, when, we, when, when a brother or sister does sin, have to be so careful. That The process of restoration is absolutely critical because when, and I'll come to the repentance in a minute, when that repentance comes, when that moment comes, it's our responsibility. Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 6. If a brother or sister sins, restore him gently. There's no qualitative difference between Peter's sin and Judas' sin. Sin breaks the relationship between us and a holy God. But Peter's love for Jesus was so strong that he instantly thought of his denial, not as how it would affect him, but how it affected his relationship with his Jesus. Peter accepts what he has done and weeps, weeps bitterly. Judas tries to undo what he has done. Take your money back. And rather than accepting what he has done and the consequences thereof, he ends his life. So friends, I think Matthew's thesis this morning is simply this. We're all sinners. But it is how we deal with our own personal sin that will determine our moral health. And I want to go one step farther. And as Dr. Menninger suggested in his book so many years ago, it will also have an impact on our mental and emotional well being as well. There is a connection between sin and mental health. And those are, again, especially in our culture, uh, not really an idea, not an idea that might be accepted universally. But, I mean, when Jesus healed someone, He didn't just heal the physical part of their being. He healed their entire being. (laughs) And that's what he wants to do in our day too. So, we're all sinners. We all have to deal with sin. And how we deal with sin will affect our own health. So how then should we deal with sin? Number one, be genuinely sorry for what we have done. I think that's what's so beautiful about Peter's response to his denial of Jesus. He just bawled his eyes out. <laughs> I mean, he just went outside, the Scripture says, and wept bitterly. Paul knows all about this concept. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's the model of Peter. His tears were tears of genuine sorrow for his denial of his Lord. I, uh, As I get older, my childhood means more to me. I know that you'll understand uh, what I mean by that as, as those of you who are starting to put on the years. And, and one of my favorite childhood memories is the Sunday night service at the Parkview Free Methodist Church in Rimfrew, Ontario, when my dad, where my dad was the pastor, <clears throat> I learned the hymns and the gospel songs of the church in the Sunday night service. Uh, dad would uh, ask for favorites. I was singing one of my brother Paul only had one favorite. Sunlight, sunlight in my soul today, sunlight, sunlight all along the way. Since the Savior found me, took away my sins, I have had the sunlight of His love within. Number 280 in the hymnal, if I remember correctly. One of those, and I I, I still have those pieces of music in my brain. Um, And I I love them, and I'm, I'm grateful Daniel has picked two beautiful songs to prepare us for the Lord's Supper and then to come out of the Lord's Supper this morning. And I thank you for that, Daniel. They're just so well-picked. Thank you. Uh, one, of, one of the ones that, that we don't sing anymore, it's a Fanny Crosby. And of course, Fanny Crosby, uh, the blind uh, hymn writer of the 1800s, uh, one of her famous sentences is that the first person that she would ever see would be Jesus. Because when she died, that would be the first person that she ever would have seen. And and we know uh, all the incredible songs, Blessed Assurance, etc., etc. One of the ones we don't sing anymore is Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Anybody remember that one? Oh, good. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Now, in that In that hymn, there is another verse that goes like this. Let me at thy throne of mercy find a sweet relief, kneeling there in deep, now here's the word I want you to hear, contrition, help my unbelief. We don't use the word contrition anymore. But it is the best word to describe the concept of repentance in the English language. Contrition. The state of feeling remorseful and penitent. That was Peter. That was Peter. Talk about penitence. Sorry. Genuinely sorry for what he had done. Word number two. Repent. Two weeks ago I uh, unpacked the phrase asleep at the switch and uh, describing the three disciples that were asleep when uh, uh, Jesus was uh, in the throes of that awful experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we looked at the fact that it was a figure of speech that comes out of uh, a previous generation, again, where uh, uh, the railroad man put in a steel iron rod into the switch to allow the train tracks to be moved manually so that uh, the train would proceed on the right set of tracks. That was a figure of speech that is indigenous to our culture, our language, that you're not going to find in another language because it, it's, it's reflected of part of the culture of the past in in our in our world, well, here's another one for you. Here's another figure of speech for you. Uh, some of you will know this one; probably lots will not. Uh, I'm going to walk the sawdust trail. Now that one is very unique. If you go to dictionary. dot com and put in the word sawdust trail, you'll find that it's a noun with the following definition. Here's the definition. The road to conversion or rehabilitation as for a sinner or criminal. Now, where in the world did the Saras Trail concept come from? Well, the date of the words Saras Trail, according to dictionary.com, The origin is around 1910 to 1915. I actually think it's the mid-1800s. I don't think they're right about that. But they're right about what the idea is and where it originated. The source, Sawdust Trail, so called from the sawdust-covered aisles in the temporary constructions put up for revival meetings. Now, the words sawdust trail take me back to my childhood and teenage years because every summer, our family went to camp meeting. We still do, although there's no sawdust anymore. Sawdust was what, used, what was used to cover the ground where the tent was erected for camp meeting. And the sawdust trail was the path to the altar. To the mourner's bench, as it was called. The place to meet God. I know what the sawdust trail is because I've taken that trail myself. I've walked it myself. To repent is to walk the sawdust trail. It's to be confronted with my sin. To be genuinely sorry, to be contrite and then to take that trail from where I am to where I need to go to walk away from my sin and into the arms of a loving, forgiving God. That's Peter's model. And in John 21, we're told that Peter displays repentance by coming face to face with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, three times he is asked, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. So Peter and Judas both sin, and all sin is the same. There's no no gradations of sin. It's just sin. So what do we do with it? Well, we are genuinely sorry, kneeling there in deep contrition. We are contrite. We are repentant by walking away from our sin and walking into the loving arms of God. We take the sawdust trail. Number three. We receive forgiveness And a restored relationship with God. Now, the first two components of dealing with sin is what we must do. Sorrow and repentance are our part in coming to terms with our sin and sinfulness. The third aspect is what God does. Sin breaks the relationship between God and I. Forgiveness restores that relationship. But you ask, how can God forgive me? Because, this is the whole meaning of the season of Lent, because Jesus has taken on himself my sins. And there's an aspect of the forgiveness of God that I want to really emphasize as we move now to preparation for the Lord's table. It's, like, it's unlike the forgiveness that we can offer as human beings. I'm going to put it this way and then I want to explain it. When God forgives, He forgets. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Oh, your response back is, God can't forget because He is perfect. To forget is to reveal an imperfection is to acknowledge an imperfection. God can't forget by definition. You're right. He, you're, you're exactly right. You know why? You know why God does forget? Even though it's not intrinsic to His character? It's not part of His perfection? He chooses. He volitionally chooses to forget. He turns his back on our sins, just as he turned his back on his son in order to pay the price for our sins. I love Corey Tanboom Boom on this subject. Here's what she writes. When God forgives our sins, he casts them into the sea of his forgetfulness and he posts a sign on the bank, no fishing allowed. Both Peter and Judas sin. But they deal with their sin very differently, and it brings very different results. The Peter model is the right model genuine sorrow, true repentance, restored relationship. Oh God, we are convinced that this message, this good news of the Lord Jesus is the hope of our world. We pray that you would use us in a way that would allow this story to become the good news for someone else during this season of Lent and Easter this year. There's so much darkness in our world. Thank you, Lord, that you are the light of the world. And the darkness will never put out the light. And we thank you in your precious name. Amen.